been a joy to be with you, and I trust that, uh, again, our time looking at the life of David will be of profit here tonight. We left David um, in Ziglag last night. You'll remember uh, how he fled to enemy territory. He looked at the circumstances. Uh, he did not seem to see God moving and uh, fulfilling his promises, perhaps in the timeline that he thought that the Lord should be moving and working, and he grew discouraged, perhaps even fearful, and ended up fleeing to enemy territory. We saw that things didn't get better for him there. The The only solution was when he turned his heart back again to the Lord and sought the Lord's direction, and the end result was that he went out and he recovered all that had been lost. Well, just a couple of days after returning to Ziglag, uh, after recovering all of his possessions and um, his family from the Amalekites, David receives word that Saul and Jonathan have died at the hands of the Philistines. And that's how Second Samuel opens up with the account of, of the news coming to David. He hears that Saul and and his son Jonathan have died on Mount Gilboa, and uh, and the rest of chapter one is uh, is is David's eulogy, if you will, uh, of beautiful words written of these two men, Saul and Jonathan, as as David mourned their loss. Well, Second Samuel chapter two and verse one, we find David seeking the Lord again for direction. And so verse 1 of Second Samuel 2, we read, It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. And and so here we have David finally on the throne. This is probably close to 15 years. In fact, we read in chapter 5, as we go on here in, in 2 Samuel, we read that David was 30 years old when he began to reign. So if we do the math, um, he was waiting for close to 15 years from the time that, that Samuel anointed him to be the future king. We read on in chapter 3, we read about this long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. This is verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. It's during this time, uh, not recorded in in this account in Second Samuel, but if we read the, the parallel account in First Chronicles 11 and 12, we find that this was a period of time where many soldiers, many of the trained men of war defected from, from the armies of Israel over to 
the leadership of David. And so by the time we get to chapter 5 here of 2 Samuel, um, probably close to 350,000 trained men of war have have defected from the the armies of Israel to David's army in in Hebron. Soon after that, um, as as you might expect, um, the the rest of the tribes, the eleven tribes, came to David, and we'll pick up here in verse one of of Second Samuel five. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying. Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also, in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven and six years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. And so, as we go on in chapter 5, we read about how David... Uh, takes over the city of uh, the Jebusites. The tribe of the Jebusites was um, in in Jerusalem, or what would be called Jerusalem, ultimately became the city of David. And uh, we read on how the uh, David brought the ark to Jerusalem. And this brings us to chapter 7, um, where we want to spend a, a, most of our time here tonight. Um, chapter 7 well, we'll just begin reading in verse 1. It came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. We'll just pause there for for a moment. Notice what Nathan says to to King David in verse three: "Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you." It's interesting. Again, this is just a window into the heart of David. Even when he reaches the pinnacle of success, he's king over all of Israel. Uh, he's the most important, most powerful man in the land. And what's in his heart? His his burden is for the house of God, not not just a, a specific piece of of uh, architecture, but but his desire was, his burden was um, that that he would know and be near the presence of the Lord and. And he had this burden for the house of God. We read more about it in, in Psalm 132. And I'll just read these words. This is Psalm 132, verse 1. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. And this is what David said. 
Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. David had a, a, a love for the house of the Lord. We read about that in Psalm 27. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David wanted to be where the Lord was. Uh, we saw that, and he certainly, uh, as a shepherd, he enjoyed being out on the hills, hillside with the sheep, but he enjoyed the presence of God there. And here he is on the throne of Israel, and, and his heart hasn't changed. He, he hasn't been distracted by reigning, by, by his power, by his, his position. Um, he still has, has a desire for, has a heart for the Lord and uh, nearness to him and so nathan goes or david rather goes on to express his desire but it notice notice here um, the response in verse four but it happened that night that the word of the lord came to nathan saying go and tell my servant david thus says the lord we'll pause there again Sometimes it's it's possible to be sincere in our motivations, but be sincerely wrong. And, and here's a situation where David genuinely, sincerely had a desire, but as he was going to find out, um, he needed to be corrected in his thinking. And, and it's here where uh, we come across a, an extremely important passage of Scripture um, as we think of it, it's the, the Davidic covenant. And, and this Davidic covenant is, is so important as we think of how it gives context to our New Testament. For example, the first verse of Matthew introduces us to the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. And the first thing it says of the Lord Jesus is that he's the son of David. And, and that's linking back to it, it comes back to this passage and the significance of the Davidic covenant and, and the fact that the one that Matthew is introducing is, is linked to the throne of David. He's of the seed of David. Well, here uh, in chapter 7, we have God, um, you might say, clarifying the terms or the conditions of his relationship with David. Perhaps... Um, you've had the experience of going in and being hired by a new employer. And you've sat down and had a meeting with the employer and, uh, you've, you've discussed, uh, the expectations, uh, what, what you're going to get paid. Um, the employer is going to be interested in, in, uh, when you show up for work and how long you work and what you're going to be doing. And, and all of these things are going to be established. Your start time, your end time, the time of your breaks, what you wear, all these kinds of things. And eventually you sign on the dotted line and, and these, these terms are established. There's an understanding, uh, on both part parties. Um, what the expectations of the relationship are. 
And, and it seems here that on this occasion where David has this desire to, to build a house for the Lord, it, it seems that, that the Lord uses this, uh, this event as a, a teachable moment. Um, as he, as he explains to David the, the terms of the, the relationship. And, and of course we think of this as, as the Davidic covenant. Now, just to get all technical for a minute here, uh, before we actually look into the passage and talk about the Davidic covenant and what God says to David, we, we need to think about the, the two main or primary kinds of covenants in the, in the scriptures. Um, covenants, as I mentioned, are those, those legally binding agreements. And there's two kinds of covenants, and they're extremely different. The the first kind of covenant is a, a one-party covenant. Um, and, and so this could be the example of a one-party covenant. I could come to Scott, and, and I could say, Scott, I'm going to buy your lunch tomorrow. Now, that's a, that's a, a one-party covenant. And, and whether or not the Scott is going to enter into the good of that covenant is based completely on my reliability. How, how trustworthy am I? What is the, my character? Um, and so a, a one party covenant or an unconditional covenant is tied to the individual who is making the promise, who is is setting the terms of the agreement. And so if I make a promise, uh, I'm not, by the way, but if I were making a promise to buy him lunch, um, it would be it would be a one party covenant. And I would if if my word is going to mean anything, I'm going to need to find a way um, to get a meal to to my friend Scott. That's a one party covenant. I'm, I'm making the commitment, um, and he's simply entering into it. There's no conditions attached. Now, there's another kind of, of covenant, and we might call that a two-party covenant, where, um, there's the, the party, there's the individual that's making the promise, that's establishing the terms, but there's conditions attached to it. So, so I was thinking of an example, and, and uh, of this, and um, I was thinking back to the last time I was at Vessels, I think it was two years ago, and uh, the Sprags uh, so nicely um, allowed me to come and spend the night at their home, and they fed me lunch or dinner, and um, it was such a nice offer, it took me to the airport and so on. But what I didn't realize when they uh, invited me to come was they had another, they had something else in mind. And um, I ended up um, moving, I can't remember, was it a son? Uh, anyways, I ended up moving furniture for the afternoon. And um, so there were conditions attached to, to this, um, this, this kindness that was extended to me. Yes, I got, a, I got a bed, I got a wonderful meal and a lovely ride to the airport. Uh, but but um, I had to... I had to um, do a little bit of work on this side. So nothing wrong with that, not a complaint. But there's a difference between a one-party covenant and a two-party covenant. Now, to be fair, Ron did not say to me before, um, you can have a bed in our home if you help move uh, the furniture. 
that would be the example of a, a two-party covenant where there there are strings attached or conditions attached. So, for example, we have God's words to Abraham. Listen to this. This is Genesis 12, and 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 I think you'll see the distinction between a one-party and a two-party covenant. These are the God's words to Abraham. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. And then he goes on and he says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. In you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. What is that? Well, well, God is making a promise to Abraham. That's a one party. That's an unconditional prom, uh, covenant that God is making. Now listen to this. These are the words uh, through Moses to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. This is the law. This is the Mosaic law. And, and this is in Exodus 19. And it starts this way. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people for all the earth is mine. And you shall be a, a kingdom of priests and a, a holy nation. And the response of the people uh, to those conditions was in verse 8. This is Exodus 19 and verse 8, where they respond and say, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So that's a, a two-party covenant. That's a conditional covenant where there are, there are conditions attached to the promises and the blessings of God. Well, listen as we read here the words of the Lord to David. Uh, his newly minted king, his newly anointed king uh, over Israel. This is verse 5 now of Second Samuel 7. The word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day. But I have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore... Thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made your name uh, you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son 
If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, if we were being all techie here tonight and you had your little clickers and you could choose, is this a one-party covenant or a two-party covenant? I, I think you would all click. It's a one-party covenant. This is God making promises to his servant David. There's, there's no strings attached. He's saying this is, this is the way it's going to work. Um, and we see the beauty here of this unconditional covenant and it's made specifically to David and his descendants. And, and he starts out and we just want to look at this briefly. What, what he says here. First, he says to David, um, he says, I want you to look back to the past and think where you come from. He said, have I ever asked you uh, or asked anyone to build me a house of cedar? And and the, the point that he's making here uh, as he's speaking to David, David here full of, of, of good, sincere motivations. He desires to build the Lord a house. And the Lord is saying, David, wait a minute. Um, I've never asked anyone for a house. Um, he, he said, uh, I, I'm not requiring anything from you. Um, God is the one who, who has uh, rescued and redeemed and uh, he's the one who made the way through the sea and, and, uh, and, uh, provided the manna from heaven and the water from the rock and, and provided the pillar of cloud by day and, and the pillar of fire by night. Um, he's, he's speaking here as Jehovah, the great I am, the self-existent one who needs nothing from David. And he's reminding David, David, I've, I've never asked you for a house of cedar. I haven't come into your life to, to ask things of you in, in this way, um, needing you to provide for me. Um, I, I'm reminded of, of an event uh, many years ago. I, I may have shared it here. It's just one of these funny little stories that I tell sometimes. But I went to visit my great aunt in a, a nursing home. She was well up into her 90s. And she asked me, she asked if I would uh, roll her into the dining room for, for lunch. And so I, uh, she was in the, huh, I should clarify, she was in a wheelchair. And so, so I, um, so I, I brought her into her spot at the table and, um, there were all kinds of other seniors in the room and it so happened that there were a number of seniors from the, uh, the assembly that I had grown up going to. Some of my old Sunday school teachers were there. And so everybody was excited to see me. And, and many of them were these older sisters and, and, and they just couldn't help, but their hospitality just started to overflow and they just wanted to feed me their lunch. And, uh, and I, I kept thinking, this is just inappropriate. Um, I, I should not be eating food off of these seniors' plates. And uh, so I kept declining and saying, no, no, I can't, I can't, no, I can't, I, I'm heading home. And, and finally, my great aunt, um, they were eating, they were eating sausage for lunch. And, and she, she took her fork and she cut off a 
half of the sausage and she handed it up to me and she said, this is just going to go in the garbage. Um, I can't eat this. Well, then I, I was thinking, I thought, now this is a matter of stewardship. Um, we wouldn't want to see this go to, to waste. And, and so I, I took the, the piece of sausage off the fork and, and just as I was reaching for the sausage, I, I, I think I had it in my fingers. The, the administrator of the home came, came out of the kitchen and, uh, she stood there with her hands on her hips and, uh, she just shook her head. Um, she knew she had caught me in the act. Um, there I was, um, stealing this old lady's sausage. And, you know, it, it, it had every appearance that I showed up at lunch, um, just so I could have a free meal. <laughs> well, what God is saying here to, to David is, listen, I'm not like that. I, I don't come to take. I, I'm the one, the self-existent one, um, that has come to give and to bless. And, and so he said, you know, look, look at where, um, the, look back and, and see where you've come from. But then, but then he goes on and he, and he says in verse nine, um, look at the present and, and think where you are and what I've made you. I guess this is verses six to nine. Essentially, he's saying, uh, everything that you're enjoying is a, is a result of, of what I've done for you. I took you from the sheepfold, he says. I came looking for you. If it, if it weren't for me, you would still be back in the sheepfold, um, shepherding the sheep, but you're, you're in the, on the throne of Israel. Um, but it's not because of your accomplishments and because of your greatness. It's because I have brought you from where you were to where you are. Uh, he said, I've cut off your enemies. Uh, it's almost like he's saying, remember Goliath, David? It, it wasn't your sling and your stone um, that took the, uh, Goliath down. And, and then uh, it's not in, in the passage, but um, it's almost like I, I can hear him saying to David, remember the sound of the marching in the tops of the mulberry trees? That's, that's a reference to the end of Second Samuel 5, if you remember that account where David is asking whether he should go up against the Philistines. And the Lord says, well, wait until you hear the marching, the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, and then you shall advance for then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And and so God here is reminding uh, David and he's saying, listen, I have made your name great. I gave you the kingdom of Israel. You didn't earn it. And, and so what you are, to, what you are today, it's not tied to your performance. It's not tied to your personal achievements. You are who you are and you are where you are because I've brought you and I've made you, um, who you are. And, and then, and then just to, to drive this point a little further, um, it's, it's like God pulls back the curtain a little further and he says, David, just to confirm that this is all a work of grace. I haven't used that word yet intentionally, but, but this is all about grace. Um, he says, he says to David, even after you're dead and gone, I'm going to keep blessing your family. Um, you, you want to build me a house of cedar? Well, let me tell you about another kind of house that I'm going to build you. Uh, I'm going to make of you a royal dynasty. 
um, one of your descendants is going to be on the throne of Israel forever. Long after you're dead and gone and buried, um, there is going to be one of your descendants on the, the throne of Israel. It's not going to last just for two generations or four generations or six generations. Your house, your kingdom is going to be established forever. Now, when we think of royal dynasties, we think of Austria and Spain and Germany and Russia, China, and some of these places. Some of these dynasties lasted for centuries as, as power was handed down to the descendants. Um, but, but as that happened, these dynasties became more and more corrupted and, and every human dynasty ultimately comes to an end. But God says to David here, what What's going to happen in your situation is I'm going to establish a dynasty that is going to flow from your descendants, from your line. There's going to be a descendant of your family on the throne. How long? Two generations? Six generations? No, forever. A thousand years later, after this takes place in in 2 Samuel, an angel arrives and makes an announcement to Mary. and, And what does... What does the angel say? Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Our brother, in the second brother who prayed, Travis, mentioned uh, the Lord Jesus as King and, uh, and how we look forward to the day when, when he will come and establish his kingdom and, and he will rule and, and reign. And, and so what God is, is saying to David here, and he's setting the, the stage for this royal dynasty that will last forever. What God is saying here is David, you need to understand, um, that the first, the first, um, Part of our agreement is all based on grace. Uh, what you are and and what you will receive from me, um, you don't deserve. Uh, you could never earn. It's not tied to your performance. What you can accomplish for me, it's it's about what I'm doing for you. And and doesn't that speak to us about how we enter into a relationship with the God of Heaven? Ephesians two. Well-known verses for by grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And perhaps we might think it's stretching it a little bit, but I, I think we who have a relationship with the Lord today, we can identify with what the Lord said to David here. We too came from the sheepfold in, in one sense. Um, the the scriptures describe us as sheep that have gone astray and and he's come to us uh, we too had a great enemy that we needed to be rescued from and 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 we think of that in in hebrews how how it speaks of the lord jesus he destroyed him who had the power of death uh, over death that is the devil and he delivered us uh, who uh, for a lifetime were subject to the fear of death We've been delivered. We've been set free. Um, we too have been brought, just as David was brought, uh, into greatness from, from obscurity. 
The same thing can be said of us. We've been brought into the family of God, uh, heirs of God. Imagine joint heirs, fellow heirs, even with God's own son. That if, if, if that wasn't in the scriptures, we would never utter it. It would be, it would be preposterous. But that's the truth of God's word. And, and so if we know the Lord Jesus as, as savior here tonight, we can look with amazement at what we've been saved out of. But that's, that's just the beginning. Like David, the blessings that we anticipate go on long into the future. Uh, as we think of the blessings and the privileges of what God is going to do. Well, look how David responds to the grace of God. Um, I love this in verse 18. It says, Then King David went in and he sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? David's no longer talking about building houses of cedar or anything else. Um, He sits down before the Lord in worship. Uh, Who am I? Um, And and really what we see happening here is his his own pride is is just been really set aside. It's um, it's (laughs) pride is always dealt an awful blow in the context of grace. And there's, there's a part of us that doesn't like grace because there's, there's nothing, there's nothing to boast of, um, as, as recipients of grace. Notice how David, where his focus goes in verse 22. It says, therefore you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Verse 26. So let your name be magnified, saying the Lord of hosts is the God of Israel over Israel. Let the house of your servant David be established before you. And, and so we see here David's response and, and it's just this beautiful, spontaneous reaction to the message of grace. And, and isn't that what worship is? Isn't that, that what our worship should look like it's it's when we are gripped by the the greatness and the goodness of god and and we recognize that there's there's nothing in this relationship that i've brought to it it's it's all of him and and we we come before the lord and and just uh, with this reaction of gratitude and thanksgiving and, and worship as we contemplate all that has been accomplished for us and the one who has accomplished it and so the david here is introduced um to this this idea of grace and and as we think of the davidic covenant it's a it's a covenant of grace but but there's more to it as we as we read here in verse this is back again in in verse 15 of of chapter 7 I'll read in verse 14. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So what God is saying here in this Davidic covenant is the, the first, the first term of our relationship is grace that that you you are you already have and you will 
receive from me what you could have never earned, never accomplished in and of yourselves. But the second aspect of, of this Davidic covenant is it's a covenant of mercy. And he's saying, I will not give to you what you do deserve. We see that come up a number of times where um, mercy is tied to the Davidic covenant. One of those occasions is in, um, just trying to find the verse here, Isaiah 55 in verse 3, um, the Lord says through Isaiah the prophet, Incline your ear and come to me, hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Psalm 89, a, a, a psalm that deals with the Davidic covenant and speaks of David. God says, My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever. And so again and again, God is 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 stating his commitment to this covenant. He's saying, I will not break this covenant. My blessing is going to be on David and on his house and on his descendants forever. And, and we ask ourselves the question, well, how can God promise his ongoing blessing on David when we know what happens in David's life in just a few chapters? Um, we, we don't have to turn very far, uh, too many chapters. It's second cha- uh, Samuel chapter 12. And, and there we find that this king who is worshiping at the feet of, of the Lord, um, in the presence of God, um, this, this same one becomes a liar, a fornicator, a, mu- a murderer, all within one chapter. And, and we, we know that the law which David was under as a Jew demanded death. It, it demanded capital punishment for, for those crimes. And, and so how could God remain faithful to this covenant? How could he uh, maintain his commitment to blessing David and his descendants when, when David was obviously a flawed, you might say a flawed human being. He was a sinful human being. Well, you remember David's response when Nathan the prophet comes to address his sin with Bathsheba. Turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is is often considered um, the first words out of David's mouth after Nathan the prophet has confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba. Notice, notice how David begins this psalm. He says, he says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Or 
another way of translating that would be according to your steadfast love or or to your covenant faithfulness and and it's this this idea of this this love and and commitment that is bound up in the promises of god and and so what is what what is david saying here he's saying lord i know what i deserve my only hope is that you will not treat me as i deserve based on your promise to be merciful um, he's not notice david's heart here he's he's not trying to uh, pretend or downplay his sin he's not asking god to ignore his sin he's he's not making excuses for his sin uh, you won't find a better example of repentance uh, and a repentant heart than these verses here in psalm 51 david is is absolutely broken he understands what the law requires but he also understands God's promises and God promised to extend mercy to him. And, and David here in this moment cries out and says, Lord, he says, uh, don't treat me like I deserve. Have mercy. Don't give me what I deserve according to your steadfast love, according to your covenantal promise. And, and we know that the Lord honored that request. Um, we can read in Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. David, David experienced mercy on that day. Did he, did he experience the consequences of his sin? Absolutely. That's another whole topic for another day. But he experienced and received mercy on that day. He did not receive what he deserved how could god extend mercy to a man like david how why did god how how could god not extend the the punishment for david's crime his multi-layered crime well the answer is the same as for you and i the fact is that god could extend mercy because a thousand years after this event there would be one who would go to the cross and willingly take David's place. And, and he took your place and he took my place and, and he, and he took the judgment for your sin and for my sin and for David's sin. And, and so that payment was made in full so that, so that uh, a repentant sinner like David could come and plead for the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God based on God's covenant faithfulness and, and promises. And so David, the Lord is saying to David here in this Davidic covenant, David, the, the terms of our relationship are simple. First of all, I'll, I'll give you more, uh, inconceivably more than you could ever wish for or ask for, even imagine. That's grace. And on the other hand, I won't give you what you do deserve. Judgment for sin. Death. Why? Because there's one who willingly took your place on the cross of Calvary. That's mercy. And what do we read in Titus? It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but it's according to his mercy. He saved us. And so just like David, God desires to pour out his grace in our lives to, to give us infinitely more than 
than we could ever attain through our own ages or through our own efforts so that as we read in Ephesians 2 that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus and just like David experienced that we have a God who is rich in mercy he can legitimately make and extend forgiveness and by not and not giving us the penalty that we rightly deserve why because a substitute has already made the payment and full and so we sing often maybe you sang it this morning i'm not sure but we sing these words we're a debtor to mercy alone of covenant mercy i sing and the end of the first verse says that the terrors of law and of god with me can have nothing to do my Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. I love the the hymn that goes like this. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. And, and so what's the, the point behind of the, the, all of this? That even after David ascended to the throne and was enjoying great success, his future would be linked to the covenant faithfulness of God. God's grace, God's mercy extended towards him. It, it wasn't that he needed God less as he would go forward. In fact, uh, you might argue that he needed God even more in the days in, in yet in his future. The same is true for us as, as believers. That's the, the same lesson that the Apostle Paul was trying to teach the Galatians, that, that our walk as believers must continue on with the same kind of dependence that brought us to the Lord Jesus in the first place. Um, he, he said, he said to the Galatians in, in chapter three, he said, don't be so foolish. You, you, you entered into, you began in the spirit. This was all a, a work of the spirit of God. In other words, something that we couldn't accomplish in our own flesh. Um, he said, don't be so foolish to think that you can go on to completion in the works of your flesh or in your own strength and in your own power. In other words, what God has started in us, he's going to be faithful to complete. That's the message of Philippians 2. And so as we think of the life of David, uh, whether we're in the middle of the battle and we're experiencing the real test of our faith, uh, whether we're in the middle of a wilderness and and we've got all of these fears and uncertainties and questions and wondering where God is at, or, or whether we're, we're at the top of the mountain, we're, we're experiencing the blessing of God and, and we're prospering in our lives. The fact is this, um, God's interested in our hearts. Um, just as David uh, understood right from the beginning and, and Samuel was told right in the, the earliest days of, of David's anointing, um, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart that was said of david when he was 15 years old and here 
uh, at the end of David's life in First Chronicles 28 and 29. We have uh, some wonderful words of David, both to his son Solomon, and then also in in his prayer, uh, final words of prayer um, in First Chronicles. Well, he says to Solomon, his son in First Chronicles 28 and verse 8, Now therefore, or verse 9 rather, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intents of the hearts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. And so David again understood the importance of serving his God with a loyal heart. And he gave Solomon that challenge. And then at the end of First Samuel, or I guess in the middle of, or rather First Chronicles 29, um, in verse 16, this is just breaking into the middle of David's prayer. Um, he says, O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand and is all your own. I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now with joy, I've seen your people who are present here offering willing to you and so here at the end of his life this is probably probably if you do the math correctly close to 55 years after Samuel or God said to Samuel that I look at the heart a man looks at the outward appearance I look at the heart um, here David is saying this the same thing to Solomon and and saying it again in his prayer I know that the Lord examines the heart. I know the Lord tests the heart. Um, and I guess the takeaway for, for me, and, and this is borrowing the words again of David in Psalm 139, the, the last uh, verses of Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and, and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Here's the same David in his, in his prayer. He's saying, Lord, I want you to, I want you to search. And, and you know, when, when God searches, he, he sees all the way through. That's the thought here in the, in the, in the language. It's, it's this penetrating gaze. It's this x-ray vision. He, he sees through. He lays bare. He exposes what is hidden. And David says, I want you to search me, O God. And know my heart and, and what? And see if there be any wicked way in me. Some translations tra- put it this way. See if there be any grievous way in me. The, the word there is, is really has the same root as, as that of an idol. Um, and, and really the thought here is see if there's anything within my heart that would grieve or offend you. And, and so this is his prayer. He's saying, Lord, uh, search me, try me, put me, put me under the test. See if there's anything that comes to the surface that is displeasing to you so that I can, that I can deal with it, that I confess it, that, that my heart can be right before you. And so I think that's my challenge as I, 
as I consider the life of David, I can't come away from it without examining my own heart and saying, boy, if, if the heart of David was so important to his God, um, I think the heart of Randy is important to, to my God as well. And, and, and so it's only appropriate that, um, I turn David's words, um, and make them my own, um, search me, oh God, uh, try me and then lead me in a way everlasting. If there's a way that I should go, um, we can look to the one who said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and lead me in, in paths of righteousness. And so, um, may we be encouraged, um, to examine our own hearts. And, uh, even as we go out from a weekend like this, all of the, all of the input that we've had, um, it's not intended just to fill our minds and to, um, deal with our, with our headspace. Um, it's intended to reach the heart. And I trust that the Spirit of God will use all of the ministry of this weekend and all of the seminars and the general sessions to, to, to really uh, do a work in our hearts that we could, we could say, um, truthfully that we're, we're changed, that we're different, um, that God would see, um, a transformation of the heart uh, to be more like his son. Father, we just bow again in your presence. We are grateful for uh, your grace and your kindness towards David, and we see your your kindness and your mercy extended to him um, in such powerful ways in the in the later chapters of his life. Indeed, the the record of his life in the Chronicles doesn't even doesn't even contain the account of of his sin with Bathsheba. And we know that that you deal with us in the same way that that you extend grace, uh, you give us what we don't deserve, you extend mercy, that is you don't give us what we do deserve. And we're so grateful for the one who took what we deserved. He he bore our sin in his own body on the tree. And so we are forever grateful for this greater son of David who would come and and would come as a, a suffering savior, but who will come again. And we anticipate that day when he will come victorious and he will take up that throne, the throne of David once again and rule and reign in righteousness. How we anticipate that day, we believe we will be there uh, as the bride, even of the Lord Jesus himself. And so, uh, bless us as we continue on. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.